Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the ninth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about what happened on Election Day and what does it mean. We'll talk about what happened in the November 7th election, who were the winners, who were the losers, and what does it mean for the future. This show is pre-recorded on November 14th. We're not taking any listener comments today, but you can send comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this afternoon. Let me introduce our guests. Shanna Bellows. Shanna is the Maine Secretary of State, a frequent contributor to our show. Welcome, Shanna. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Mike Shepard. Mike is the political editor at the Bangor Daily News. And we all subscribe to your daily news stream, Mike, and very much appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Shen, I'll put the first question to you. How'd it go on Tuesday? Smooth running? Any concerns? It was great. Mainers should be really proud. It was another smooth, safe, and secure election. Uh, decent turnout, not record-breaking, but certainly strong, especially in some areas. And our clerks did a marvelous job. We are so lucky uh, to have really dedicated election officials all across the state who worked really hard pulling off yet another successful election. Were there any snafus, any little things that, you know, came up? There are always little snafus and surprises. Uh, I think... Um, <laughs> Auburn brought out two more quads. Those are the stand-up polling booths that people can go up so they could have accommodate eight more voters at a time because they were seeing really pretty steady turnout. They had a mayoral race as well as the statewide ballot questions. Uh, there were, you know, Kennebunk uh, had a couple of uh, battery issues with their tabulators. So they put the ballots in the regular ballot box to, to run through the machine a little bit later. Not a big deal. You know, little things like that, but nothing uh, of major concern, nothing that hadn't been seen before. And again, our clerks did an excellent job. Yeah, that's great. Mike, there were some surprises in the outcomes, maybe. What um, what did you see that maybe you weren't expecting to see? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest surprise to me that the state ballot wasn't as big of a, of a surprise, but I, I think that generally went how we thought it would go, minus maybe some margins and, and you know, just the strength of some victories and some losses. I think the most surprising aspect to me was was the uh, the loss of the uh, Auburn Mayor Jason Levesque. He, he lost by quite a big margin. I think it was more than 60-40 um, down in his city, which, of course, was affected just about as much as, as Lewiston was by the by the mass shooting. You know, they were they were standing up. They were standing up places for victims to reunite with with families. And it was, you know, a city councilor lost his son in the shooting at the at the bar there. So there was a lot of impact there. That was the biggest surprise to me. I think the strength of CMP's victory, right, and the, the utilities victory on around um, question three was also really interesting. Uh, the fact that they won almost almost literally every single main town, uh, city and town was was I think pretty pretty shocking, right? Given especially that the people voted against the CMP corridor, right? Just just two years prior. Um, so in terms of surprises, I think you know you really look at the strength more than the more than the outcomes. But certainly there were some uh, interesting and surprising outcomes on that night. 
what about you, Shana? Any surprises or anything that you didn't expect to see in the outcomes? You know, unlike the the newspapers, we're 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 the we're not in the game, the nature of predicting outcomes, right? So we weren't suggesting what might happen. Sure. And to be honest, we were so focused on administering the election, we weren't really thinking about what voters might do. I can't think of anything that I would say was a real surprise. I was pleasantly um, surprised to see question five pass. Maybe not surprised is over strong a word, but that that question I think was per- perhaps the most complicated in its wording. And at its essence, it gives election officials at the state level more time on petitions. So glad is the right word. We we're really glad to see that one pass. <laughs> Some of us were surprised that it was even close because, I mean, if you understood what the question was, it seemed like a no-brainer. But um, I guess it maybe it seemed complicated to people. I don't know. I think there's always a natural resistance to amending the Constitution, right? But question six was decisive. Yeah. Perhaps that was surprising. People really do want to see the Constitution printed in its entirety. Now my office gets to do that. Well, I want to go down question by question and you okay. know, sort, sort of really talk about it. So um, let, let's start with question one. That passed, right? And um, question three and the um, Pine Tree Power, which w- was kind of designed to uh, sweep up Pine Tree Power, it didn't pass. So what is the effect of question one now? Uh, you, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I can take that. Uh, yeah. I mean, essentially nothing, right? Um, it, it really only had uh, the, the the legislature's fiscal office actually looked at this. And you know, just to refresh people's minds, because I still have to refresh my own mind, and even though it is my job to know what order <laughs> things appeared on the ballot, uh, this was the one, question one was the one that that it, it, that took a shot at, it was a CMP sponsored question that took a shot at question three, if it was to pass, that said all uh, quasi-governmental, some quasi-governmental agencies and all of the consumer-owned utilities, you know, would have to get statewide approval if they borrowed more than $1 billion. And so basically, no one else has done that. Uh, it was aimed just about squarely at the at the uh, at the utility. It's it, the effect is effectively is going to be it's going to be moot. So it's going to apply to nobody, basically. Yeah, I mean, unless somebody comes along down the line and and really wants to borrow more than a billion dollars for some reason, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't happen though. And as long as we're on the subject, question three, and we you already sort of talked about the strength of the victory. Um, did you think that? Uh, did you think that it would be closer, I guess, is is what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, I thought it would be closer. I didn't think it would be close particularly, but I I, um, I, I was thinking somewhere in the realm of 58, 58%, maybe 60%, but we wound up, you know, up to up really to, to 70%. So, um, yeah, just the strength of victory alone. I mean, there were only a few towns that there are only a few towns that went the other way on this one. Uh, Portland was the most notable one, but it, you know, but question three barely won Portland. Uh, Orono notably was one. Blue Hill, but these were very narrow. These were very narrow victories, and and really there were only I think five or six or seven towns that they won. So we almost never see that in wow. uh, any election. So it's 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 pretty amazing. And there was so much money on that yeah. question, right? Do you think that the amount of money that was spent on question three actually had an effect on the outcome of question two? On the effect of question two, I'm not so sure about that um, because because question two went the exact opposite way, right? Question two, just to refresh everyone's mind again, was the 
was the foreign electioneering ban that was in part kind of aimed at CMP, right? So I think it was 86% of voters, 86, 87% of voters supported supported that. And yet 70% of voters supported CMP in their position right on the other, on the other question. So uh, I mean, look, voters, I think they were, you know, they, they were discriminating here, right? They, they looked at, they looked at one issue and seemed to take it on the merits and then looked at another issue and, and took that on the merits as well. I think it shows that, that CMP, right, is a, it's a complicated political player. They're so ubiquitous, uh, you know, as a, you know, the utilities are one of the few things that each of us buys something from <laughs> every day. Uh, they're really important in our lives. Uh, especially in a state like Maine. And um, look, I think people, I think people here have complicated feelings about them and it showed there on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like, like CMP spent so much money. There were a couple of things about the money, you know, the, the utility spent so much money on question three. And I think a lot of people just thought it, it's too much money. And I thought they might've voted for question two because they thought it would restrain the money in the future, even if they were voting yes on three. And then, um, I don't know if you can comment on this, Shen or, or Mike, but um, I know we observed petition gathering at the polling place, and one of the petitions was also about the money, and I think they did very well on election day. Um, you know, And again, it was people just saying, we hate the money. Um, so what, what have you heard about that petition? And as long as we're talking about the money, then we'll move on. Sure. So there were circulators gathering signatures, both for the presidential primary. This was the first general election that that had happened just based on the timing and when those signatures can be collected. And then also um, for uh, a campaign finance reform measure that's being championed uh, by uh, Larry Lessig and others. And interestingly, in some places, including my hometown of Manchester and uh, also in Orna, it was the same petitioner collecting signatures for both, which was interesting. I will say question three saw the highest turnout of all of the questions. Oh, really? So the advertising does potentially influence turnout or drive turnout or drive voters' decision-making in terms of their comfort in weighing in. So, that so was- just explain that in a minute because people don't have to answer all eight questions. That's right? right. We always say voting is not a test. You vote your values. And if you want to skip a question, you can, um, or if you want to skip multiple questions. And so what we saw is question three had the highest level of turnout. Now the official numbers are not out yet. Um, so that's just based on unofficial results from the towns. Official numbers will be released once we've checked everything, you know, dotted those I's and crossed those T's. Um, But then when you look at the lowest level of turnout, that was on question seven. Um, Now that was on the back side of the ballot. So one might say, well, seven and eight, of course, they're going to have lower turnout because they were on the back of the ballot. But actually, uh, question eight saw higher turnout than question seven, excuse me, five, rather, question eight had higher turnout than question five. Which was on the first page. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's where the complexity of the language comes in or people just not having strong feelings um, or uh, a lot of, you know, comfort with that question. The three highest were two, three and four, which is where you saw the money spent. Yeah. Two being the issue of foreign spending, three being uh, pine tree power and four being the right to repair. Uh, All of those uh, over 400,000 votes cast. 
whereas um, the rest of the questions saw just under 400,000. So what was turnout overall? And then I want to ask Mike about question four. Sure. So again, those those results are not yet finalized, but we did see just over 404,000 voters um, cast ballots. That is actually uh, less than we saw in 2021. In 2021, the official tally was 416,055 ballots cast which was um, at that time 37.98% or 38% of the voting age population. So this time around, I think once we we do finally crunch all those numbers, I think we're going to be around 35% of the voting age population. When you look at registered voters, that bumps it up above 40% most likely, far short of my hopes and, and dreams for 50% turnout. Um, but yes, it was interesting to see that 2021 saw a slightly higher turnout than this year. And remind us, what was on the ballot in 2021? The CMP corridor. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, you're on mute, Mike. Even more money in that campaign, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was a, a record-breaking one. Wow. Yeah. All right. Talk about question four. Um, Mike, you go. Yeah, of question four. This was this was the right to repair referendum, and 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 it and it wound up about how we expected it to go, right? Because we we had a proxy for this in uh, Massachusetts, where where they passed this in 2020, actually by I think it was 78 percent of the vote somewhere up there. We did them one better. We we gave them I think uh, more than 84 percent of the vote. Uh, this is an interesting question, right? Because it it really is a it's a it's a war between. Uh, the automotive industry, right, which was on the no side of this, and the uh, and independent garages, places like VIP, generic parts manufacturers, right, who try to fix cars outside of the dealership, and um, you know the automaker system. Most of the money was spent by the independent garages, the you know VIPs oh. and and AutoZone, and you know there were in places like that that were spending money on this, and um, the automakers didn't really probably seeing how this worked in Massachusetts didn't didn't put a ton of money into sinking it, and it's probably good for them that they didn't because uh, it probably would have been seems to have been money wasted, but uh, I think this is going to be. This this law it has been delayed in Massachusetts for a while. It was just implemented over the over the spring, so we don't really know how this is going to wind up. It's probably going to be the subject of a lawsuit. It's still the subject of an active lawsuit down there. It could very well be unconstitutional. We'll see how that we'll see how that works out. But we certainly got a sense of uh, what the voters think about this. What's the nature of the lawsuit that's challenging it in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's essentially saying that this is a it's a this is it's a it's a commerce clause issue. This is a issue that that the the federal government needs to needs to solve. So it's um you know it's it's a pretty straightforward. It's we see the same arguments. You know, the Secretary of State will be familiar with them, and in, in you know in other lawsuits against the state, right? Um, be it be it about internet privacy or you know, and we've lost we've lost some of these lawsuits, but we we've, we've won others, including that one. So so it, um, is the is that data at the heart? of the challenge yeah it's the data yeah it, what's at the what's at the heart of this is the telematic systems that are used to diagnose problems with cars now increasingly right um these systems are much more electronic than than mechanical like they used to be right so um it's there are instances where garages have to pay money to get access to certain types of systems or certain and certain data you know that didn't exist right you know 20 30 years ago and is now just becoming so essential so it's um you know it's really it's really as as so many referendums come down to it's uh, a war between two industries and um i think that's always important for uh mm -hmm people to realize, right? It's not all it's not always, you know, home baked ideas, right, that, that face us on the ballot. It's uh 
it's people who have the money and the wherewithal to get these issues before us. Sometimes, alas, um, that is true, right? I'm going to do a little station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. We're talking about what happened on Election Day and what does it mean? Our guests this afternoon are Mike Shepard, political editor at the Bangor Daily News, and Shenna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State. This program was pre-recorded on November 14th. No listener calls are being taken. In the first um, quarter of the show, we did the citizen-initiated questions, one through four. We'll turn now um, and talk about the constitutional amendments. And question five was one that I know your office advocated for. Shanna, tell what it was and what happened. Question five gives state election officials uh, more time to certify petitions when they come in around a big election, either for governor or for presidential election years. And it just creates a blackout window 30 days prior to election day and 30 days after election day uh, during those times. And we're really excited about it because uh, there are you know, less than 20 election officials at the state level. Uh, Last year, we had 11 uh, working on our elections, and we had to certify two of the referendum questions that came in that were on the ballot this year. While we were running a gubernatorial election, all the statewide legislative races and the congressional races. So I was jokingly calling it election officials deserve Thanksgiving, too, because (laughs) We had to get those petitions certified by the day after Thanksgiving, while we also had to run a ranked choice voting tabulation, three legislative recounts, a county recount. Um, So a lot of my team had to cancel Thanksgiving week plans because we just had so much work to do. But also, as we see an increase in citizen-initiated petitions, I think making sure that we have the resources and the time to adequately verify those signatures and make sure that they have been de-qualified to go to the ballot uh, is important. So we're glad to see that one pass. Any comments on that one? It all seemed so wholesome. It seemed in a way a little, geez, I wish it hadn't been that close. Do you know what I mean, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, it, it was a pretty straightforward one. I think the the question, the the wording is, you know, it's 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 got a few numbers in it. It's a little long, but um, I think the um, I, I think the sentiment, I think the sentiment mostly got across to people that it was it was mostly just a change that was you know intended to ease workloads. And um, so I think on that one, you know, you know, it's 50, 58, 59, 42. It's not that you know, not not. Not too bad a margin, but oh, I had a different number in mind. I thought it was fifty-one to forty-eight. It was more than that. Good. Yeah, no, you you got well, up yeah, in high at the end. I think early early on in the night it looked closer, and then as the night went on and results were coming in, it it definitely um, became more yeah. visible. When you look at it versus question two or question four, it's like, oh wow, <laughs> it's so close. No, but fifty-eight but we saw is a- some really wide margins this year that we don't usually see in elections. Right. No, I thought it was more of a nail biter. So I'm glad to be straightened out on that. It gives me confidence in democracy that it had good, got a good solid yes. Um, what about question six, Mike? Yeah, I wasn't. I, I wasn't surprised that this passed. That was the. Those were the. That was the sign of this on on this one early on in in public opinion polling. It looked to be ahead. I, I think what helped this question, to be honest, and this was the one that really dealt with the state's tribal obli- obligations to the tribes that for some reason in the 1970s were set aside from the printed version of the constitution. 
it's a little there's a little bit of confusion as to exactly why that happened at the time. I, I think the, number one, this question was really clearly written, right? It doesn't it doesn't talk about the the tribal the tribal obligations, but it just says, do you want do you favor amending the constitution? essentially to require that the whole constitution be printed, right? It was very easy, right? And I think it's less in the weeds than than some of the other questions that were on the ballot. So I, I commend the, the Secretary of State's office for their writing there. I can't take credit for that one entirely. We did offer some suggestions to the legislature, but the legislature wrote the last four questions. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, should I just explain to people one more time? I know we've covered this before, but the ballot order, like we're talking about the first four and the last four, how how does that work out? We pick it out of a hat. Well, the citizens' initiatives always go first. That ballot order is prescribed uh, by law. So those four first went first, but we picked the order among the four out of a hat. And then the constitutional amendments go second. But again, we picked that order out of the hat. People put a lot of stock in ballot order. But in terms of overall turnout, again, seeing that question three had the highest level of turnout, that that tells me that ballot order may not be as as perhaps critical as people think that it might be. Um, question one actually had lower turnout than questions two, three, or four. You know, the constitutional amendments had le- had lower turnout overall than the citizens' initiatives, but that may have also been by virtue of fact of being constitutional amendments. But the legislature writes the wording of the question when they put those- They do. It's in the bills that they pass. Exactly. Whereas your office writes the questions for the citizen initiatives, right? That's right. Better or worse. Right. It's hard. It's awful hard. I know. It's really hard. Go ahead, yeah, Mike. I, and I try, and I'm, you know, as someone who tries to summarize these things, you know, in for, for people, it's 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 a, it's a difficult task to actually write the questions. So, but uh, I would just add too on the constitutional amendment front, I, these are all, I mean, all four of these, right, were were essentially put here at the urging of the Secretary of State's office, and then put and then put back and then put here by the legislature. So there there was no super PAC that the Secretary of State put together to argue for these questions. There was no money behind them, right? So, um, you know, I think the part of the reason why you see a little bit the, the voter, you know, the voter turnout, you know, the, the voters drop off a little bit on these is just because, you know, they're just they're just lower. They're just lower tier, right, in terms of public awareness about them. So, you know, I think people just have to work harder maybe in the future to if you're going to, you know, if, if the secretary of state or the legislature is going to put these things on the ballot, especially given the failure of the last two questions, I think I think maybe more thoughts got to be given to um, how you're going to get the word out on these. I think there's a there, there's some interesting conversations maybe we can have later about that. Yeah, I want to come back to that on question eight, because what happened there, I thought was really um, kind of a shame. And, um, you know, I mean, I know there is a main tradition, and either one of you can comment on this, about how governmental officials don't really campaign for questions. And there was a little bit of a controversy a few years ago when the wardens weighed in on something or other. And I I know you were, um, you know, pretty open about your hope that question five would pass, but really nobody campaigned for six seven or eight, except, I mean, except the Wabanaki and the disability rights people, you know, so go ahead, Mike, I see you're. Oh, no, yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. I mean, I think it's just, it's a, it's, it's a function of throwing four more questions on a ballot. And, you know, that's already kind of crowded, right, with the four citizen initiatives, I think that there are bound to be opportunities where, you know, for, for things to get lost in the shuffle for the messages to be a little bit muddled and there were op-eds and things like that on those, uh, those letter two questions, but not really much in the way of communications that most voters would see ultimately at the end of the day. And I think that's, 
you know, and that's 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 going to have to be a calculation for the Secretary of State, future Secretaries of State, and anyone who wants any other you know official who wants to wants to throw a lot of things on the ballot at the same time. I mean, Shannon, was it were those four all sort of initiated by your office? Question five was for okay. sure. We requested that Representative Supika bring that one forward. Question six was initiated by Speaker Talbot Ross, uh, and she approached us about supporting it. We did testify in favor of it. Um, we we were happy to support that because it is my role to print the Constitution. And I don't remember which came first, her reaching out to my office or, or my office flagging for her, that we were required to print the Constitution. And I had been asked, could I print the omitted sections and had checked with the Office of the Attorney General and they had said, you know, you swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. You have to do what the Constitution tells you to do. So we had made it very clear to the legislature that in the, the so the secretary is tasked with printing the Constitution every 10 years. And we had made it clear that if we were going to uphold the Constitution, we couldn't print those omitted sections unless that were fixed. Uh, so that conversation did happen. Uh, Senator Hickman, who chairs the Veterans and Legal Services Affairs Committee, um, brought the sec- the last two amendments. And similarly, those arose out of conversations. Uh, I think he's a constitutional, I don't know if scholar is the right word, but he is so into the Constitution. He, I think, more than many legislators, really loves delving into the constitutional history and details. And um, I do remember a conversation with him where he said, so, you know, talk to me about what in the Constitution doesn't make sense. And um, certainly shared with him. He was very aware of the lawsuit, interestingly brought by Representative Billy Bob Buckingham and the We the People PAC against my predecessor, Matt Dunlap, that I then inherited, challenging uh, the issue of who can circulate petitions for these citizen referendums. So that case was We the People versus Bellows. And uh, we lost uh, both in the lower court and then in the First Circuit. And this uh, relates to question, question seven. seven, right? Yeah. Um, and I and I also shared, you know, with Senator Hickman, like, I'm very proud that in our state, every main citizen who is age 18 or older, who is a resident and a citizen here in our state has that right to vote. It makes us really special. And I talk about that everywhere. But I did say to him, you know, it's odd that I talk about it everywhere. But then when we hold up a copy of the Constitution, it's not what the Constitution says, but it is what the Constitution requires and means. So there was bipartisan support for those housekeeping amendments, question seven and eight, that really didn't change the state of the law, but would have changed the wording. Uh, Alas, I don't think that message got through to the people. And I think people were voting on what they perceived as the merits of the issues. I've been saying to, to some of the news media outlets, I agree with the people's protest vote on question seven. I do think Petition circulators should be registered main voters, but I also swear to uphold the Constitution. And if the courts have told me that that violates the United States Constitution, then of Thank course, you. we're going to make sure that petition circulators know that they can utilize outside um, out-of-state help. Well, I, I want to go back and finish up on question six and then talk a little bit more about seven and eight. So on sure. six, I mean, one of the questions I have is that the um, the tribal obligations were not the only part of the Constitution that got invisible ink treatment. There was a whole bunch of other sort of administrative stuff in there. Now, are you going to have to print all that stuff? 
Well, there's another interesting legal aspect. So I actually print what the chief justice of the Supreme Court prepares and the legislature approves. So we have to ask the legislature to ask the court to prepare a new version of the Constitution for us to print that the legislature then approves prior to doing that official printing. Uh, And according to this legislation, we'll be printing it in its entirety. And that will mean that historical information about setting up of our state uh, that is, is fascinating. It's not perhaps completely relevant to what we do today, uh, but that history will be printed uh, with the Constitution. I think it's kind of fun. I think it'll be really interesting for students and people who geek out over the Constitution to see those previously uh, omitted provisions. I mean, you can find them online and in unofficial versions, even on the state legislature's website, but it will be fun for us. We'll actually be printing it on vellum when we do that official printing, So, and then have it in archives. It's going to be a little longer. (laughs) It will. (laughs) All right. Another station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shannon Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, and Mike Shepard, political editor at the Bangor Daily News. Our topic today is what happened on Election Day and what does it mean? The show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So we're up to question seven, which, um, uh, Secretary Bellows, as you explained, um, our Constitution had been sort of overruled in federal court. So there, this was only to make our Constitution line up with the practical effects of it. And it failed. So where does that leave us, Mike? It just leaves us exactly where we were on both of these questions, right? Um, you know, this is these are parts of our. It, it's a it's a funny thing, right? Parts of our constitution have been deemed unconstitutional, but our voters have decided to keep them in the constitution, and um, <laughs> and and that's all you need to know. Uh, we can't enforce right these prohibitions uh, in question seven. In question seven, right? That would be the that would be the circulator the, the residency requirement for circulators that people that you see trying to get questions on the ballot. Uh, we're not enforcing this now. The courts have said we can enforce it. Uh, the state's lost a lawsuit, as 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 Shenna said, to that effect. So uh, nothing is changing. Uh, and if it passed, nothing is changing. It would just clean up the Constitution so it would, ref- would reflect what we can actually enforce. And it's the same for question eight. I mean, it's a little bit of a shame. Oh, no. Go, go ahead, Shenna. Um, the only thing that changed with regards to question eight, maybe it's not a change per se, but I do think it demonstrates that there's a lot of work to be done to help people understand the laws around legal guardianship and and mental health and to understand also disability rights. Um, I have two friends, uh, both who are in situations where they're under legal guardianship and they were really devastated by the results and they are avid um, followers of politics, really engaged, really well-informed really care about our state. And they were concerned that friends, colleagues, people that they know that are also under guardianship by reason of mental illness might not understand that they have the constitutional right to vote. And in contrast to the circulators, where when circulators want to circulate a petition, they have to come to the office of Secretary of State. And we give them explicit directions. And those directions are very clear. 
that they have that freedom to hire whomever they want as petition circulators, as long as they follow the rules. Uh, With regards to voters, voters are making those choices. They're deciding whether to register and whether to participate in an election. And so I do worry that some people may have more awareness of the language or the outcome and and wrongly self-censor themselves or keep themselves from voting. So I do think that there is going to be a public education and public awareness uh, campaign or work that needs to be done both with advocates in the voting rights and disability rights communities and also my office, making sure that voters have the information that they need to know that it doesn't matter. Every citizen who's age eligible, 18 years or older, on the November election day, has that right to vote if they're a resident of Maine. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of misconceptions around what guardianship means and what circumstances might lead to guardianship. Britney Spears is the most perhaps public or notorious case. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody would look at Britney Spears and say, oh, she shouldn't be able to vote. Um, but unfortunately, I think there were a lot of misconceptions that went into to some of the decisions or some of the votes on that that particular question, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I would I would agree with you that 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 particular question, you know, it, it, I think it, it manifested itself in a way that shows us there's just more more education is needed around the, the laws around voting for sure. Well, and a, again, sort of um, leaving that question to sort of swing on its own there mm-hmm. without an organized campaign behind it, or worse, putting it on the affected community to defend itself. I mean that. I had uh, an, an unfortunate, um, an unfortunate outcome. So, Mike, do you think there will be a conversation in the future about having an appropriation go with these questions when the legislature brings them forward, so that there can be a campaign? I've seen some chatter about that. I think it's going to be. A, I think it's going to be a tough sell to to put. You know, to put. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen some talk about like a clean election system for for referendums like this. Maybe it's a maybe it's a good idea. You know, I think it, I think it would be a tough sell for people. You know, there's some general resistance to clean elections, right? Particularly from from Republicans to expanding it. You know, and you have to get kind of you know you get to get some sort of consensus behind that. Um, so I've seen it. Maybe it maybe it would work for some people, but I think I think I, I think at the end of the day, right? The the legislature and and agencies have to be pretty judicious about how many questions they put on the ballot at once, how they get the word out about it whether the you know whether the people are likely to support them or not i mean i, th- I think this is a good example of one that's always been a tough sell with voters in 97 and 2000 they rejected yeah, explain that because it's been on the ballot before right yeah, right and this was this was this was deemed unconstitutional i believe in uh by a federal judge in 2001 and um it was there were cleanup proposals here even before that um that the voters also rejected so i think it's pretty clear people are looking at the this issue on the merits May may not necessarily know what the what the law is here, and are voting accordingly. So I think this is just uh you know this is I think I think the the legislature saw here how you know it's pretty amazing right that all legislators basically can 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 put a few things on the ballot and then get overturned by the people in pretty convincing fashion sometimes. So it's um you know that's something they're going to have to look at and uh, and I don't know if that's going to be you know putting money behind it as is going to be the solution, but I'm sure it's going to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think to your point, I think that the legislature was really seeing this as a strict constitutional issue and this language is not enforceable. And and the questions that were on the ballot 
were designed to elicit that particular, you know, issue. But legislators are very steeped and so are agencies and thinking about the law and thinking about the constitution and thinking about statutory uh, determinations. And I think the legislature is used to passing lots of laws and voting on, on lots of things. But I think particularly looking at question eight, treating that as a civil rights issue. And I, I think back to marriage equality and I'm really, you know, proud of the work that I did on marriage equality and that we all did as a state uh, at the advocacy level, even the many years that we lost. <laughs> um, but that took some public education that took public conversation to help surface the issues before we were finally successful in winning in a statewide referendum campaign. And that was only three years after 2009's um, statewide referendum loss on marriage equality. So I think civil rights for people um, with mental illness, people under guardianship by reason of mental illness, perhaps needs a similar perspective or treatment from those who are really interested in equal rights for all uh, is to think about, okay, how do we have those conversations with friends and neighbors? How do we develop that shared understanding and those relationships so that so that people have a broader understanding of those civil rights protections rather than um, treating the questions as housekeeping questions, which in fact they were, but recognizing that the voters are not necessarily going to see them as housekeeping questions. The voters are going to see them as questions on the merits. And right. so if you're going to bring that forward, doing the work um, to promote that. So that's, you know, I think in some ways we're agreeing. I, I, I don't have any regrets about supporting those those questions because I think from my perspective, it's important that the constitution reflect the rights that people have. But I do think, um, you know, moving forward, perhaps building a coalition so that there is some outside support um, outside of our agency. Because we certainly had editorial board conversations and I spoke at public forums in favor of these, but that's a very limited reach. Um, I'm very mindful of that. Yeah. Mike, were there geographic built differences in how these questions split? Did you see anything like that? I mostly looked at geographical splits on the um on the on the uh the first four questions. I haven't really dove deep in uh dive deep into the results on the last few. Um but I was actually, you know, on the first four, I was I was struck by how how few geographic differences there there really were. I mean, as I as I said earlier, you know. CMP and Versant, they they won their campaign pretty evenly across the state, and in the margins were you know the margins were you know large in those first four, so um, so not so much there, um, but um, but I think the other ones were not you know they weren't really questions maybe outside of the of the question six on uh, which really revolved around tribal rights there wasn't there wasn't one issue or the other where you'd see a particular geographic constituency, right? So, um, you know, you'd, you'd see different patterns of voting across the state, but they, they may not hew to the, the typical partisan lines or anything like that. Were there any exit polls? I mean, it certainly seems like sentiment towards the tribes has taken a big shift here over the last couple of years. Uh, I think that's, I think that's true. I think I, I haven't seen um, a lot of polling to that exact effect, but I, but I, you certainly feel it in the main legislature, right? There's a lot going on there in terms of just look at the evolution of Governor Mills came in right in 2019, really wanted to uh, repair the, re the re relationship with the tribes. 
hasn't really succeeded in that because Governor Mills is right. The one is, 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 is the one uh, in the legislature. She's, she certainly made some deals with the tribe. Sports betting is a, is a notable example of that, but she's also been a stalwart a, opponent of their key tribal sovereignty measure. And she was, a, she was, she opposed question six on the ballot as well uh, when it was a, an idea in committee. So you know, it's, it's led to kind of mixed results on that front. Um, but I think, what you saw this past year, right, is 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 the governor was still opposed to a tribal sovereignty measure, but House Minority Billy Bob Falkingham was a big champion of that. There were a few Republicans that were on that bill at the end of the day. Some of them flipped to sustain the governor's position on on that key bill, but Republicans are now coming around, you know, are starting to come around on the on the tribal rights issue, uh, and most Democrats are are already there at this point, uh, Governor Janet Mills being, being right. One of the, one of the people who stands out for not being there. So I think, I think there's a, I think it's been building. Uh, I think there's a good chance the next governor, even, even maybe if they're a Republican could be, could be there on that issue. So I, I definitely sense, uh, sense something growing on that front. Mm-hmm. Now, Shanna, this was a little bit of a long ballot this time. Do you know when was the last time we had this many? No, I, I don't. don't either. <laughs> um, we did but, our best. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, looking at states like California that have these, you know, pages and pages of ballot questions, what does the, you know, science tell us about ballot fatigue and voter fatigue when they have to, you know, look at all these questions? Do you know? So, again, we looked at the turnout by question. And while there is some drop off with the last two questions, uh, the last question did get more votes than the fifth question. So it wasn't, there wasn't a strong correlation there. Uh, Additionally, I think there are definitely theories about ballot fatigue and there are theories about ballot order. Uh, I don't have enough data to suggest that those are necessarily upheld or that we saw those at play here. Or do you think people are more likely to vote no as they keep going? Like, I'm just getting sick of voting on these things. No? That's an interesting theory. Again, I don't have any data, and perhaps it is my science background that without data, I'm not going to yeah, right. make suppositions about that. We publish a citizen's guide um, to the referendum questions, and I'll be frank, the, the citizen guide was long. It has the statutory language that was behind each of these questions. It had a fiscal impact statement. It had an attorney general's analysis of what it actually does as well as statements for and against from proponents and opponents. It was 63 pages long. So we've been talking a little bit about what we could have done to make that more accessible. You know, should we be placing a QR code, you know, in the ballot booth so someone can just go right to the guide, you know, from from the ballot if they want to. Um, And so we're already thinking about what we might do in the future to improve public education uh, and public outreach and, certainly to try to continue to aspire to increase voter turnout. Yeah. Any thoughts about the length of the ballot, the order of the ballot, voter participation on a long ballot, Mike? Yeah. I mean, I've actually, I've actually, I have, I have looked into the scientific literature around uh, voter fatigue in the past and um, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, there was a, there was a a good study out of, uh, I think it was the USC law school back in 2014 that, Kind of founded a myth that there are really no voting effects based on question order, and that, that's like at a reasonable level, right? If you know, yeah, it would. It's different when there's eight questions as opposed to if there were forty for some for some crazy reason, right. you know, right. that, that might that might change. But um, but in terms of that, I think it's uh, it's one of the many kind of wives' tales in in politics, right? That that 
you know, like, you know, this is an industry that's still built on, on yard signs, right? We don't really have any evidence that works, but everyone still does it. Right. So, so true. Campaigns when they, when they want to, when we have a big referendum ballot, you know, campaigns generally want to be one, or if they can't be one, they want to be two. We don't have any real evidence that any of it matters, but it, it makes people feel good. So yeah. <laughs> I think this is just, this is just, it's, it's, it's part of politics. Were there any um, close elections? None of these questions were close enough for a recount, were they? No. Were there any recounts in local elections that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, Shanna. I haven't heard of any. There was one clerk who told us that she was anticipating she might get a request, but it wasn't in a particularly close race. I think it was someone that couldn't believe that they had lost. So I won't (laughs) share that because I'm not sure if it came to fruition. Uh, (laughs) I can't believe when I lose either. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, of course, we we are seeing a runoff election in Lewiston. So if, you know, Lewiston voters are going to be going back to vote for in their mayoral race because none of the candidates reached 50%. And Portland had uh, ranked choice voting tabulation or instant runoff tabulation the very next day after election day. Um, And Mark Dion uh, was elected mayor coming out of that tabulation. So you did see races there that were close enough that they went to the the next step in terms of a runoff or ranked choice voting tabulation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shanna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, and Mike Shepard, political editor at the Bangor Daily News. We've been talking about what happened on Election Day and what it means. This program was pre-recorded on November 14th. No listener calls are being taken this afternoon. Back to our conversation. So that was 2023. Now, Elections are going to be a little different in 2024. What can we expect will be different next year than what we had this year, Shanna? Well, there are three big reforms that I want to share. Uh, So we'll have the presidential primary on March 5th. Get ready. And that will be the first time that Maine implements semi-open primaries. So that means that people who are unenrolled, not in any party at all, can vote in the presidential primary of their choice. Now, only... The Democrats and the Republicans have requested presidential primaries. Uh, The deadline for that has already passed. So those are the only two political parties that are hosting primaries. Uh, That means if you are enrolled in a different primary, you won't be able to participate. And just to be super clear, Democrats cannot participate in the Republican primary. Republicans cannot participate in the Democratic primary. But unenrolled voters will have an option of picking which primary they want to participate in. So that will be very new for Mainers and very interesting. We're anticipating that will drive what is traditionally pretty high turnout in Maine even higher uh, for our primaries. There are two other reforms. Oh, no, no, let me, I got a question on that one before. Sure. Yeah, on. yeah, I know. That's a good one. Okay. So, um, you know, I worked at the polls on election day and I saw five parties named. There were the Democrats, the Republicans, the Green Independents, no labels, and the Libertarians, right? Is, is that so we got five qualified parties now? Well, so no labels has not yet um, filed to qualify as a party. Um, they have certainly enrolled many voters into their political party, but they've not filed um, and requested qualification. The Libertarian Party is fighting to keep party status because once you have gained party status, you don't necessarily retain that party status. So the three parties that we know will have party status 
um, for the presidential primary because of their sheer numbers are the Green Independent, the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party. Um, certainly, I think it is very possible, even likely, that No Labels and the Libertarian Party will also be um, able and qualified, but uh, that that remains to be seen. I've certainly run into people over the years who were enrolled as a Green Independent, you know, Green Independent. They thought they were independent. Are people going to be surprised if, because if you're a green independent, that's not actually unenrolled and you couldn't vote in either of those primaries, right? I do think that that is a source of potential future confusion. I do think that I have definitely met many green independents who thought that they were independent, meaning unenrolled. Um, and they are not going to have an option of participating in either the Democratic or Republican primary. Unless they unenroll by... 15 days prior to election day is when they need to leave the party. Um, and that would qualify them. There is a little quirk in Maine law. So should the libertarians or no labels not qualify as, as a party, um, then those voters would be counted as unenrolled. Uh, that will also be a voter education um, job for me. <laughs> Uh, and for the clerks, because I do think that that may create um, confusion for ballot clerks who, as Mainers know, are volunteers, uh, one from each major political party. And so that certainly will be a training uh, task for us is to raise awareness about who does and doesn't qualify to participate in that semi-open primary. But in the event that the libertarians and the no labels do attain party status, um, those enrolled voters would also be shut out. Of That's the open right. Primary, right? You want to comment on this, Mike? Um, the open primary thing? No, I think I think I think the Secretary of State laid it out pretty well. Um, it's going to be, you know, for those people at the margins, it's going to it's going to matter more earlier, right? That you're that you're enrolled in these parties now. So um, so it's 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 something that had limited effect, you know, to this point, but uh, has a little more has a a little more effect now. And um, that will be true in June as well, right? That's right. So you were getting ready to say other changes for 2024, and I cut you off. So please proceed. No so we're really excited. We'll be deploying online voter registration for 2024. So people will be able to register to vote using their mobile device or, you know, home computer. Uh, that, I think, will really help transform voter registration. We're really excited about that. Uh, we'll also be uh, unveiling ongoing absentee voting for seniors and people with disabilities who want to just have a ballot mailed to them every election. So those are two innovations, reforms that the legislature passed and Governor Mill signed into law that we're really excited about uh, implementing in 2024. Timeline? You don't have to be very specific. Just <laughs> Look for it this winter, prior okay. to, but certainly um, in time for the presidential primary. Excellent. And um, when do candidates have to qualify? Like we, like you said, there were petition circulators for Republican candidates at the polls. When do they have to qualify for the March ballot? The presidential candidates who are qualifying for the March 5th primary ballot must submit their signatures to the secretaries of state's office on or before December 1st. Uh, okay, that's right coming up. right up. 
Yeah, that's just a couple of weeks away. All right. So speaking of who's going to be on the presidential primary ballot, I know there have been challenges in a couple of states, Minnesota and Colorado, to whether um, ex-President Trump, President Trump could be on the ballot. We're not expecting a challenge like that in Maine, or how is that actually working? Mike, have you been following that? Yeah, I'm sure the Secretary of State's been following it, uh, been following it a lot more, and uh, she's been asked this question a lot, and she's going to be asked it uh, a lot more, including Uh, today. (laughs) Including today, uh, and not just today, down the road as well. But um, you know, it's it's a national, it's it's kind of a liberal national legal theory that 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 former President Donald Trump, right, uh, you know, could be barred from the Constitution under the Fourteenth Amendment, which which uh, addresses insurrections, right? Um, I think it's a little bit of a, I personally think it's a little bit of a Hail Mary. I don't expect it to to happen in a lot of these places. Um, but it, you know, these, there, there are nonprofits on the left that are charged, that are promising challenges across the country, right? If, if the, if the former president, right, is allowed on primary ballots, arguing, you know, that he, fomented the riots and that they constitute insurrection right under that provision of the constitution. So, and then if that were to happen in a state, right, the, the, the Trump's campaign would probably jump in and sue. And, you know, so people are going to be suing people and <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be complicated. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are, you can find some good legal analysis on both sides of this um, state officials, right? Like the, like the, like, like Shanna are going to be on the front lines of this. They're going to have to be the first to make these kinds of calls um, and she can she can take us through how they're going to how they're going to make these determinations. Um, you know, it's a pretty straightforward legal process, and um, you know that's going to come in Maine uh, at a decision point after that December first deadline that she that she mentioned. Go ahead, Shanna, take us through it. How's it working? So Maine? The candidates submit their signatures on or before December first. Uh, the any registered Maine voter can then challenge the validity of those signatures and the placement of those candidates on the primary ballot that has to happen pretty quickly within a week's time. And then I have a week to hold a hearing uh, on the merits of that challenge and receive testimony from both sides. Uh, Following that, I have, again, a week's time to issue a written decision. And I'm serving in that hearing as an administrative uh, hearing judge, as it were, a hearing officer, rather. And so for that reason, I have not engaged in conversations with people about the merits of the 14th Amendment challenges. Certainly, I'm aware of what's been happening across the country. Um, Minnesota, most recently, their Supreme Court um, uh, threw out a challenge um, to uh, Trump's placement on the ballot, uh, stating that uh, state statute didn't preclude the par- political parties from nominating the people of their choice, regardless of whether they are or are not eligible to be on the general election um, ballot or to serve. So they sort of set aside though that question and referred to the presidential primary process as an internal party election to serve internal party purposes uh, and noted that winning the presidential nomination primary does not place the person on the general election ballot. I think that's sometimes misunderstood because, of course, the parties are choosing their candidates after the primaries are over, after the conventions are over for placement on the general election ballot. Um, So that's what Minnesota's Supreme Court uh, just found in dismissing the case there um, in an order uh, just last week. Um, Colorado 
arguments have concluded in that particular case, and a judge is expected to rule shortly uh, with regards to the Colorado challenge to Trump's placement on the ballot. Um, once I issue my written decision, should someone challenge and it's contingent on someone making that decision to challenge signatures and that hearing being held, uh, once I issue a written decision, uh, then that is a, can be appealed by either side uh, to the courts and, and certainly probably would be. And so, I think a lot might happen between now and December in terms of court precedent. Certainly whatever happens in Colorado would likely be appealed uh, potentially. Uh, to the Supreme Judicial. So th these would be challenges to his appearing on the primary ballot. Um, mm -hmm. What about challenges to his appearing on the November ballot if nominated? Is that like a step down the road still? So that so that doesn't happen until August. But so, that, so that could still happen. Right. Okay. So usually what happens in August is the parties have their political conventions. They choose their candidates. They send letters to the state saying, this is our candidate for the general election for ballot placement on the general election ballot. So that's certainly, this issue is likely to be with us for some time. Yeah. Uh, and I think we we may see, and that, well, it, it obviously it depends on what happens with the party conventions, right? We don't, none of us have a complete crystal ball um, as to what might happen in the future. Yeah, anything can happen. Well, we run out of time this afternoon. I wanna give you each a minute or less because we are late um, to run some parting thoughts. And uh, Mike, you go first. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this election was, this election was in large part what we expected. Um, next year, I think there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot between now, we were just talking about a lot of it, a lot uh, on the road to, to 2024. Again, we're gonna have three elections, right? The, the presidential primary, the normal primary in June, and then the, the November election, uh, of course. So a lot can happen. A lot's going to happen in terms of presidential politics. Um, you know, maybe the presidential primary by March won't be as much of an issue, right? Um, there could be a smaller Republican field. Um, so I think it, you know, and certainly the legal uh, the the legal issues here, um, you know, maybe make things even more uncertain than they would normally be. But um, you know, twenty twenty four is obviously going to be a presidential year. A lot of interesting elections here. The legislative races here are always close and competitive. Um, a congressional race in Maine's second congressional district is going to be is going to be a is going to be a really interesting one. Um, you know, Jared Golden is a Democrat in a in a very vulnerable place all, all, all the time up in that that more conservative district. So, um, so it's a you know, Maine elections are are really interesting, and that's why we're here talking about them, and and why we'll continue to be for sure. Go ahead, Chenna, wrap us up. Maine was number one in twenty twenty two in voter turnout in the nation. We had a strong year in 2023, but let's make 2024 uh, even better. Regardless of you know who you vote for or what your values are, what you bring to the ballot, I think voter participation, bringing our best selves to participate in our democracy, that's what it's all about. I couldn't have asked for a better concluding thought. So that's our show for today. Thank you to our guests this afternoon, Shenna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, and Mike Shepard, political editor at the Bangor Daily News. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is lwvme.org. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month. 